Note of caution. The following episode contains adult content, which includes violence and trauma. This can be triggering to some listeners, so please listen with caution. In today's episode, I interview journalist and podcaster Connie Walker on her latest podcast series, Stolen, The Search for Jermaine. I also sit down with director of the SRPMIC Family Advocacy Center to discuss their services. Let's get into it. Hello and welcome back to OAN Connects. My name is Jessica Joaquin, ad sales slash news person for the Autumn Action News. This is a special episode and it's going to be a little longer than our normal episodes. Last week was National Week of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and May 5th was National Day of Awareness for MMIW. This is to increase awareness of disproportionate violence experienced by Indigenous Canadian and Native American women. Today's episode includes two interviews along this subject matter. We'll start with Stolen, The Search for Jermaine. This is a podcast by journalist Connie Walker of Gimlet Media. It is about a young woman named Jermaine Charlo, a 23-year-old mother of two who went missing in the summer of 2018 in Missoula, Montana. The eight-episode series explores all possibilities of what could have happened to her. Her whereabouts remain unknown. Walker interviews family and friends of Jermaine, as well as those who saw her on the night she disappeared. I had a chance to interview Connie Walker on her latest podcast, as well as the challenges she faces in the newsroom and her intention to continue telling these stories. Thank you for being on the podcast. And can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm, I'm really happy to join you. My name is Connie Walker. I am a journalist. I work for Gimlet Media and I host a podcast called Stolen, The Search for Jermaine, which is a podcast that focuses on uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and tries to also, um, you know, explore some of the, the 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 history of Indigenous people and and the realities that, that we face um, in our communities today. I'm also Indigenous. I'm Cree from Saskatchewan, uh, from Treaty 4 territory in Saskatchewan, and I grew up in my community. And, you know, uh, I've always been interested in um, telling stories um, about our people and our communities. Um, but I've been a journalist for 20 years, and for most of my career, there was very little interest in in those stories. And so it's taken me a long time to get to a place where now I can focus exclusively on 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 these stories and on these issues that I really care about because uh, you know I, I also have this this personal connection to to this subject matter. So um, yeah, so that's that's a little bit about me. I, I live in Toronto with my family, um, my husband and my daughter, um, and yeah, I'm happy to join you. Can you tell our listeners how you went from hearing about Jermaine's disappearance to this amazingly well-produced and heartbreaking podcast? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been reporting on violence against Indigenous women and girls for a few years now um, in Canada, primarily. I, I used to work for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And I did two series or two seasons of a podcast with with them called Missing and Murdered, which was also focused on on the issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls. And and it was through the making of those podcasts, which, you know, each season focuses on one one unsolved case and really tries to connect the dots back to the bigger issues that are are leading to this crisis of violence in our communities and so when I, um, you know, moved to Gimlet Media and started to look at 
cases in the United States. You know, one of the first things I did was try to connect with the people who are doing this work in their communities. Because in Canada, when this issue started to get attention and traction, you know, it was really um, Indigenous women and advocates, you know, who who often had a personal connection to the issue, like they had lost somebody in their family or, you know, that one of their loved ones had had been murdered or is, was missing. And then they became advocates for their loved one and for their family. And then, you know, we found that they then kind of became, you know, spokespeople for the issue generally and really trying to to do the work of like pushing media and pushing um, you know, the justice system and pushing for for politicians to take action. And and I found that, you know, unsurprisingly, it was a really similar situation in the United States. I, I went to a conference actually in Arizona last year in Tucson, um, and it was focused on trafficking in indigenous communities. Um, I think it was called Strengthening Our Sar- Sovereign Responses to Trafficking. And it was, you know, a conference filled with Indigenous women from all over the U.S. who were working to prevent violence in their communities. And it was at that conference that I met so many people who themselves, you know, had somebody that they knew who had who had been um, killed or who had gone missing. And one of those women was was a woman named Lauren Small Rodriguez, who is from. Uh, the Nor- Northern Cheyenne from Montana, but she lives and works in in Missoula, Montana, and she was the one who first told me about Jermaine Charlo, and uh, and so when I started researching Jermaine, um, you know, there were a few things about her that really grabbed me. You know, I'm like the first one was one of the first photos I saw of her, uh, which is the photo that we use in the the podcast art, and you know, she's looking. It's a selfie, and she's taken it herself, and she's looking straight into the camera and and I just found you know like her eyes to be so engaging and and there was just you know I I felt like I wanted to know more about her and who she was um and what the circumstances were that led to her disappearance and I read an article and it talked about the last time that Jermaine had been seen was in downtown Missoula um and that she was captured on surveillance footage walking down the alley and that she turned a corner and and that was the last time she was seen. And I think that was such a haunting image for me, just this idea of, you know, her being one of, you know, maybe hundreds of of young people in downtown Missoula, because it's a very vibrant college town, um, mm-hmm. you know, walking down the alley and then just turning a corner and 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 disappearing. And and I and you know, I, I think that you know, they had interviewed her aunt Valinda, who also talked about just, you know, how agonizing it's been for her family and how they're desperate for for answers. Um, and and all of those things made me want to learn more about Jermaine and learn more about her disappearance. Uh, and so I then I spoke with the the detective who has been investigating her disappearance, um, uh, you know, since June of 2018 when she went missing. And in my first conversation with him, you know, we talked for over an hour and he laid out all of the different things that he was investigating in relation to Jermaine's disappearance and the, the different theories that he was looking into and talked about, you know, how he's interviewed over 90 people. And he has 
you know, four thick binders filled with, you know, filled with papers relating to his investigation, Jermaine's disappearance. And we hung up and I, I just knew I wanted to know more and I wanted to travel to Montana and, and learn more about Jermaine and her disappearance. Because the thing that struck me about it was that I knew that, that, you know, that people there would have more information. Somebody, somebody knows Mm -hmm. what happened to Jermaine. Somebody knows, you know, and, and I wanted to to get there and start talking to people and try to get as much uh, of a story um, and much as much information as I could about Jermaine and her disappearance. Yeah, definitely. And how did you go about retracing her steps and why was it important to you to actually be in Montana to do that? Yeah, I mean, f- for the kind of reporting that I do, which is like very in-depth and, and investigative, um, you know that's very hard and very difficult to do uh, over the phone or over over Zoom, um, and I think one of the one of the trickiest things about it is is building and establishing trust with family members. You know, um, that's a huge integral part of of the work that I do, and I think that um, what what I've found is that you know a lot of Indigenous people, you know, our stories have been so underrepresented in mainstream media and and when and even when we get some media attention you know it often feels like it's misrepresentative of our lives and our situations and and there's this long history of in journalism of people coming in and taking stories and leaving and and you know causing harm really to the people who are affected by um you know who are at the center of these stories which are often about, you know, um, pain and, and trauma and grief. And, and I, I very much, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to take a different approach and I want to, mm-hmm. um, help, you know, try to, you know, build a, a relationship with families and to have them feel as though they have agency and control over the way their story is told and help them feel like, I'm not taking their story. I'm I'm helping to amplify their voices to tell it, which is doesn't sound like maybe that sounds not that significant. But I think that in terms of the way journalism is sometimes done, it it, it feels very important to me, and it's very difficult to do that um, if you're not in person, and and even like Jermaine's story is a really great example because. You know, I, I talked to her aunt Valinda and she was supportive of, of me pursuing the podcast. And I talked to her aunt Danny and she was also supportive. And they both said, you might not get to talk to our mom. Like she's not, she doesn't talk to the media and, you know, this has been really hard on her and, and you know, that just might not happen. And, and I was, of course, respectful of that. Like, I don't want to impose on anybody who's not interested in, in talking to me. But also like I, then when I got, went out there and I got to meet Vicky, you know, um, I think just being face to face with her and having her, you know, realize I'm I'm not that different. You know, I'm I grew up on my reserve. I grew up in my community. Um, she felt so familiar to me too, and I just felt like you know I liked her right away. And you know, we talked, and and eventually, you know, she she did. We we sat down many times to talk together about Jermaine and talk about her story. And I don't think we could have really built that kind of relationship if if I hadn't gone there in person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then also just for the kind of work that we're doing, like, you know, we're very focused on Jermaine's story and trying to find answers about the truth about her, her disappearance. But I think that, you know, it, it doesn't, her story doesn't begin with the night that she disappeared. It, it began, you know, long before that. And mm-hmm. in some ways it actually began even before she was born because so many of the issues that we face in our communities today are tied back to this history of, of colonization and this history of how Indigenous people have been, you know, dispossessed from our land and subject to um, institutional racism and how we have, 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 you know, basically been dealing with the effects of this attempted genocide for, for centuries. And, and there's so much about that history that we don't know that, that even not like, even we don't know because Mm -hmm. we're not taught this in schools and and let alone non-Indigenous people or settlers. You know, I, I think that there's, there is in some ways, I feel like we, we have to take the place of public education and what we're not teaching or, um, you know, teaching kids about the truth about this shared history. Because I think that that is connected to this issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls. Like, that's connected to all of the issues that we see in our communities. It can't be separated from this, the truth uh, about how we've been impacted by colonialism. And, and so, you know, it's really important also there then to be in a community and to be learning about the history of that community and to be understanding or trying to understand as best I can, you know, how that history impacted Jermaine's life, how it impacted her parents' life, how it impacted her grandparents' life. Um, and we, and, and it's really important for me to try to weave that in to the podcast as well. Absolutely. And I think you did a wonderful job with it. Was there a difference or did you feel any way being from Canada coming to the U.S. and not knowing if you could relate to her family or um, could could gain their trust? Were you at all worried about that? Yeah, yeah, I definitely I definitely and I still worry about it even after, you know, having had a good experience with Jermaine's family um, with Stolen. I'm from Canada, which, which, you know, is in terms of Indigenous people, we're incredibly diverse, right? Like we have First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people across the country. Um, In terms of First Nations, you know, my experience as a Cree woman from Saskatchewan is going to be very different in some ways to uh, a Gitsan woman from Northern BC or a Anishinaabeg woman from uh, Eastern Ontario or, you know, somebody from the East Coast. And I think that, that, you know, there, there's so much diversity in our communities. Mm-hmm. And so I never want to take for granted that I have a sense of what it means to be a Bitterroot Salish woman from Montana. But at the same time, like, I know that there is a kind of shared similar experience in a lot of our communities in, in that we've been impacted by colonization and in that we've all been subject to, you know, policies that have dispossessed us from our land and, um, you know, in Canada, we had the residential school system, which impacted generations of Indigenous families uh, across the country. And that was a system where they took um, Indigenous kids away from their parents and their communities and forced them into these residential schools when they were five, six, seven, eight years old. And they were made to live there throughout all of their school years. And it was an attempt to, you know, force them to assimilate and to, um, you know, take away their language and culture. And they were often subject to horrific abuse 
um, in those residential schools. And that's something that we're still dealing with. So even though, you know, we have a, a great diversity in terms of our cultures and our languages, um, we have that shared experience of surviving, um, you know, the impacts of that colonization. And I think that that mm -hmm. in, in the U.S. I'm, I'm learning was, you know, part of the boarding school system and that there are these shared experiences. And so, um, you know, we do, we do have uh, things that tie us together in some ways um, and create, you know, a, a kind of kinship um, I, mm -hmm. I think, or that I feel at least. Um, but I always, I don't want to take for granted that, that, or, or like assume that I know, uh, you know, what it means to be Bitterroot Salish from Montana. Uh, you know, I, I very much tried to approach things as carefully as I possibly can. And, and, and that's the great thing about being a journalist, you know, that, that I love as well is that you can ask questions and, and, and mo like a, a big part of our job is learning new things and learning and getting to ask the, the experts who know those questions. And that's something, um, that I, I it's part of what I really, really love to do. Well, you, you made me think of another thing, too, is the fact that, you know, for me, being an Indigenous woman, listening to another Indigenous person tell the story about MMIW, for me, it relates more to me, like I can connect with it better because of your storytelling, whereas I don't know if I can generally make that connection had it been a non-Native person telling me this story, right? Because I trust you. Mm -hmm. And you're not only mm -hmm. connecting with her family, but others who are who are listening to this, who happen to be native and know everything that you're talking about. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think that that's absolutely true. Like, I, I think that well, that's some of like the best feedback that I've gotten. Right, is from other indigenous people who say, you know, that that they connected with it in a way um, that that it reminded. There's somebody who wrote me on Facebook the other day saying that it felt like I was I was talking to to them or their family or about their family, and and I think that like it's so important, um, you know, to support Indigenous people to tell our own stories because because of that because of, of exactly that and because of you know the the things and the choices that you make in storytelling even in terms of like trying to you know understand that Jermaine's story is connected to the history of the, that land and, and her community and and that that's a choice that we make to try to to make that connection help people understand how that's connected is one that I make because I know that's true for me I know that's true for my community I know that's true for my family's history you know we've absolutely been impacted by um the, the history of our of treaty 4 and the history of 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 the area in which we come from and that that if you don't have an understanding that i mean we we have we have decades of mm -hmm. people reporting on our communities to show how you know a lot of people don't have that understanding they don't have that context we have decades of of having um you know of working in newsrooms and pitching our stories and having people say oh people don't care about that or people aren't interested in that you know, there was, I think that, you know, for most of my career, there was this attitude that our stories weren't important or that people wouldn't care or that, that, you know, they weren't worth, uh, you know, reporting on. 
And that that has like resulted in so much harm. Like it's the, what's happening is is ongoing, and we're starting mm-hmm. to change that. We're starting to like, you know, tell more of our stories. But I I, I really strongly believe that we need to be um, supporting Indigenous people to tell our own stories, and to 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 take back, you know, that the the microphone or or the space that that we need in in order to be able to do it. And that's you know. That's something I'm I'm really committed to. That is amazing. And thank you so much for saying all that. That's it's a lot to think about. And it's kinda sad, kinda sad mm-hmm. at the same time too, you know. You got you can open your own doors yeah. essentially is what you're saying. Especially in the podcast world, I feel like it doesn't really take a whole lot to there's a lot of free platforms. Like if you have a story you wanna tell, you can as an indigenous person, you don't need anybody to give you the green light, you can just go ahead and do it if you want to. Absolutely. Like there's there, I feel like digital media in general has just opened up so much opportunity for us to, to really take ownership and tell our stories and, and for there to like, it's really also helped push, you know, I think mainstream publications and newsrooms and helping understand that there, there are these audiences out there, like that, that people are, um, you know, they care about our stories and they want, they want to hear them. But I think that we also have to push for change within those existing Mm -hmm. newsrooms and spaces. You know, I worked for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for almost 20 years and now I'm at Gimlet Media. And, and I think that, you know, there have been improvements absolutely in terms of like representation and the number of people in, in newsrooms, but it's still, we're so underrepresented. Like I've never worked with another indigenous producer or editor. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's, I've had, I've been in this, you know, field for, for 20 years now, over 20 years. And, and so there still aren't enough of us in these mainstream spaces. And we still need to figure out how to, um, you know, bring, bring young journalists in and, and help, empower them to start telling their own stories but then also like what 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 do we need to keep supporting people while we're in these spaces like so many indigenous journalists and storytellers that i know have come in and it hasn't been a safe space and it hasn't been a positive experience and then and then they Mm -hmm. leave and and i think that we have a responsibility to make sure that our our newsrooms and our our um you know these spaces are safe for indigenous people and that we're doing everything we can to help support them and empower them to help tell these really important stories like this is this is absolutely something that we can do it on our own and we people are doing it on their own and and all the power to them but we need to also be holding the, the people who are creating like you know the vast majority of the of news and in these spaces holding them accountable and making making sure that they understand that this is something that they need to take on as well this isn't just going to happen on its own mhm mhm it was a fantastic series an absolutely fantastic series great production value and um you definitely set the scene with you physically being in montana i remember the scene where you talk about where she reportedly got dropped off and where she actually got dropped off and you're driving that and your reaction to that really let us know that this is pretty significant distance, you know, and I think that goes, that works for bringing us into your story. So thank you so much. No problem. I, and thank you so much for, for listening and, and for, 
um, you know, sharing, sharing Trimmy's story. You know, I, I often feel kind of conflicted when talking to other Indigenous people about the podcast, because on one hand, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's obviously like, I think so many people are, are so generous and so supportive of, of, you know, amplifying our stories and, and, and supporting one another and telling these stories. But this subject matters is very hard, right? And a lot of us have, a personal connection to it, you know, we, you know, even if, you, you know, you haven't lost somebody in, in your family, like there's so many things that we're talking about in terms of the rates of violence in our communities or domestic violence or the impacts of, of all of these things are things that we all have personal experience with. And I know it can be difficult and sometimes triggering for people to listen. And so I always, you know, try to advise people to take care while they're listening and and not to feel any obligation because I think that a lot of this work, you know, is is really also meant to help educate people who don't know and who don't have that personal experience. Um and so I I'm so appreciative of the support that I've, you know, that we've gotten from indigenous people and indigenous um organizations. Um but I know that 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 this is this is kind of a hard story to hear sometimes. So I just, you know, want to caution people to take care while they're listening. Definitely, definitely. Is there anything else you would like to share about you or your work? I I mean, for me, I just feel like, you know, I feel like it's such a privilege um to to help raise awareness about the this really like really what is a crisis. Of, of violence in our communities that Indigenous women and girls in particular are, are dealing with and in, and indigen, Indigenous men and boys. I, I don't mean to diminish that at all. Um, and, and for me, it feels like, you know, I, I was, I've, I've been interested in, in these kinds of stories for so long. And now that there's, you know, finally seems to be a recognition that they are really important and that there's an audience for them, you know, I, I, I want to continue and, and keep going as, as much as I can. And, uh, I want to tell more stories, you know, I want to do, you know, we're doing, we're going to do another season of stolen and I want to do several seasons of stolen. And I want to, you know, if we, if we did a story in Arizona, it would be a different history. It would be a different context. It would be Mm -hmm. a different thing that we would need to explore. If we did one in Oklahoma, it'd be different. If we did one in Alaska, it'd be different. And, and I, I feel like there are so many stories from our communities that deserve to be told um, and I just want to do whatever I can to help help bring those forward. You can find the eight episode series Stolen, The Search for Jermaine for free on Spotify. All eight episodes are available. I would highly recommend another podcast by Connie Walker. It is called Missing and Murdered. There are two seasons. Season one, Who Killed Alberta Williams? And season two, Finding Cleo. Both deal with heavy subject matter and are very well told. You can find Missing and Murdered wherever you find your podcast. Okay, moving on. Let's get into some information about the Salt River Pima Maricopa Family Advocacy Center, which was established October 1st, 2009, here in the community. I sat down with Family Advocacy Director Carol Comanero so we can gain some knowledge about this program. The mission of the FAC is to provide a safe, secure, and healing environment for the investigation of causes involving child abuse and neglect by utilizing a collaborative multidisciplinary team to reduce further trauma to children and other vulnerable victims while honoring the cultural values and traditions of the SRPMIC. Yes. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Carol Colmanero. 
I am the Family Advocacy Director here in Salt River. I have been the director at RFAC for about two years. I have been serving the community for the last 10 years. I actually hit my 10-year mark this year in 2021. Um, When I first started in the community, I was a um, child and family therapist um, under behavioral health services in the community. And then I moved into management. After about a year and a half, I became the behavioral health um, service program manager over Journey to Recovery, our 90-day residential program here in the community, and then shifted after about three years and supervised the child and family, adult and family team under behavioral health services for outpatient. I um, am from a different community. I'm um, Navajo and Mexican. I have two daughters and um, just love what I do. And um, by trade, I'm a social worker, and I'm here to talk about our program today. So happy to have you here. Okay, so what kind of services do you offer at the Family Advocacy Center? So the Family Advocacy Center is really, it's the hub for all investigations against crimes against children, as well as adults. In the nature of, for adults, sexual assault, domestic violence, sexual abuse, physical, and neglect. Um, Initially, when our Family Advocacy Center was birthed, it was originally focused on serving only children in the community um, that had experienced um, child abuse, neglect, or a sexual assault. And now we've grown so much that we are now serving adults. So over the last, I would say, five to six years, we've opened our service up to adults. So we serve now from our youngest we've ever had come through is about two years old, all the way up into, you know, as an elder. We provide victimization services um, were the hub for collaboration. So what that means is in our facility, there's myself and I have a very small team. So I supervise a very small team of individuals, but I'm responsible for the collaboration that exists among our multiple multiple um, departments that are involved in our FAC. So for an example, in the FAC building, we have my core team that's housed, which consists of an office manager, a front staff member, um, two victim advocates, and two trauma-based therapists, um, trauma-trained therapists, and myself. And then also who's housed here that is part of our multidisciplinary team is um, Salt River PD. We have one sergeant and four detectives that handle all the crimes against the children and the sexual assault crimes. And then we have our um, social services CPS team, Child Protective Services, which consists of one manager and five investigators. Um, In addition to those core members, we also have our family preservation program housed here. And the reason for that is just it gives us another opportunity to provide services to community members. So it really is a comprehensive um, wraparound approach when a case is referred to us. We really try to um, really ensure that that client doesn't fall through the cracks by quickly wrapping them very tightly with services, at least offering them services immediately um, rather than through the referral process. We still use the referral process and we still um, utilize our partners based on the situation and the acuity of the case that could vary. Let me explain how we get a case here at the Family Advocacy Center. So our two primary um, referrals that I would say is our Salt River Police and our CPS units. 
Um, they are like first responders. They're the ones that are first called out to the scene when there is an alleged crime against a child or a sexual assault crime. And based on their initial investigation, they will make a determination on the direction of which the case is going. And so at that point, a referral will come through our Family Advocacy Center and we come together as a team. And that's where the word multidisciplinary team comes from, because we know that our system can be very complex at times and really can be discouraging because for an example, if I have a client that um, had just experienced something traumatic and is being referred throughout the community, that might work for some, but for others, it might not. It might discourage them and they might not ever return for services. So the idea here is based on these investigations that when they're being staffed, we are making sure that that family and that client are getting the services they need immediately. And so that's something that I call all, all hands on deck. So our partners that we work very closely with is social services, behavioral health services, health services, legal services, tribal prosecutor's office, education, my core team, which are the advocates and the trauma um, trained therapists. And our new, newest partner to the table is housing because some of our victims who've been victimized, you know, housing has certain rules and things they have to follow. But if we know if we come together and we're trying to help that family and that client be successful. Um, and the more information they know about how we can navigate through that, we can help families be successful even in the housing mm -hmm. realm. And so um, a referral really comes from those two entities. Anybody could walk in though off the streets if they have experienced a victimization in the nature that I described earlier. So it would be, you know, child abuse, child neglect, or a sexual assault. Just some quick statistics here in the community. Uh, let's see, from March of 2020 until about October of 2020, we had 11 sexual assault cases come through um, the family advocacy. And that's, that's an alarming statistic based on the size of this community. So we here at FAC, we're the hub for that. We're, we're here to assist individuals who have been victimized. And the services that we provide is a variety of things. So it's the initial investigation that occurs and really hand-walking that victim through the system. So as an advocate, they'll be assigned a victim advocate and that victim advocate will navigate, help navigate the client through the system, whether it be through a court order, attending court, um, maybe it's as simple as I need a food box, I need my electrical bill paid. Um, we even help with relocation and um, housing and rental assistance. So that that's really how a referral can come through. It can come from through any entity within the community. And you can um, call our phone number that we have, or um, you could even show up to the door and say, you know, I experienced something. I need to report something for myself. And um, you know, we'll get somebody to help you out. That's our, that's our goal is to really ensure that we're providing a really um, safe and secure place for all of the community members that um, have experienced uh, what we call victimization. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned, you know, some of your referrals come through PD. What would you say to um, somebody who is experiencing maybe nothing that the police can do about it, nothing physical, but is experiencing verbal abuse or financial abuse? Is that something that you could help with? The Family Advocacy Center could help with? Absolutely. And I would encourage, encourage that 
um, community member to do a police report. If somebody's being financially taken advantage of, especially an elder, or you have some, you know, um, something you've experienced, the message that I want to send to the community is that we start by believing. That's number one. We know statistically that victims that come forward and tell their story of their victimization, the first few sessions of that is very critical. It's important that they immediately seek out either a police or, you know, they make that call. And um, once that happens, it will they'll get referred to our Family Advocacy Center, and then we could start helping them. I think in Indian country, not just specifically to this tribe, but in Indian country, the general idea is because of complex trauma and um, in, in, in intergenerational trauma and historical trauma, victimization and trauma has become normalized for us. And we don't mm-hmm. even know that. We don't know it until we step back and look at, well, wait a minute, you know, this happened to me too. But yeah, that happens to all of us. Mm -hmm. There are statistics for you is one out of three Native American women have been sexually assaulted. So that means when three women are sitting in the room, at least one of us has been sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. That's an alarming statistic. And most victims do not come forward because of that, whether there's, there's shame around it, guilt around that. Why well, I, sh- I was in the I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I shouldn't have done that. You know, those are normal things that victims share in common and a, a very normal thought process. But what's important is to know that your story is so important. Whether that means even if that you if, even if we can't move forward with charging it, there's some healing that happens in in telling your story, especially to somebody who's going to believe you. Mm-hmm. And that, 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 it starts with that. It starts with believing. Um, so I would encourage, um, and I really want to send the message that there's not no, there's no more pressing victimization than another. There, there's no such thing as that because everybody responds to trauma differently. Mm-hmm. So we might have experienced something very similar, but it, it doesn't mean that we're going to respond the same way. And that's what's important is that here at FAC, we're trying to hold that space and hold that space for any victim that comes through. Whether in your mind it's smaller or larger, that doesn't matter. That's important to you. And my job is to ensure that we're providing that secure, safe place for you to begin your healing journey and whatever that looks like. And everybody's story is different. I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Well, it sounds like you're doing, I mean, you're just such a, um an amazing source for for somebody who might be going through a situation right now. And and that is really, really great. Is there anything else you would like the community to know? Um, we're here. We're here in the community. We, we at times were known as, you know, it was very secretive, not on purpose, but because of confidentiality. But we're really trying to um, shift the gear in that because, you know, of prevention, you know, it, it, the more that we understand the impact of trauma and that there is help to address that, whether that be with a mom, an auntie, an uncle, dad, a cousin, whatever the, whoever it is that um, healing is possible for them. And here at FAC, we believe in that. And so, um, you know, FAC is not just FAC, it's a multiple departments coming together to help serve the community. So we're here, 
um, we're here to serve. And one thing that I think I want to end with that um, our flyer is really not a flyer, but it's a statement. And it's called, It Starts With Me. So as a caregiver, I can greet every child by their name each sunrise. I can offer food and laughter each day. I could read or tell a story every day. I can offer a blessing on their behalf each day. And I could lead by example and take care of myself. And that is how you end and break the cycle of trauma. And it's an everyday thing. It's an everyday, it becomes an everyday choice once you begin and make that first step. Wow. That's great. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Carol. Can you give can you give out the uh, contact information for the FAC? So our um, direct line here is going to be 480-362-5425. Uh, and um, if we, I do have a few other um, numbers for partners, if um, I'll, I'll just read those very quickly. Um, some of our partners here at FAC, Behavioral Health Services, so that's directly for, like, you know, um, therapeutic services for your family individually. That's 480-362-5707. Um, and then our Tribal Prosecutor's Office is 480-362-5400. And then Social Services number is 480-362-5645. And then if you do have a report for a child that you want to report, it's 480-362-2600. I would like to thank both Connie Walker and Carol Colmanero for agreeing to be interviewed and sharing their knowledge with us. I would like to thank you for listening. As someone who has triggers, this was a difficult but necessary episode to put together. Please take care of your heart, your head, your whole being, and look out for each other. Thank you for joining me. We'll catch you later. Goodbye.